you know, if you've got someone who has multiple issues, you know, they got blood sugar issues, HPA axis issues, they've got GI issues, they've got heavy metal toxicity, uh, you know, where do you start? What, what's the, where are you going to get the most bang for the buck? But so I developed a few different models that helped me to think about um, these questions. And one is this, what I call the functional medicine systems model. At the core of that model, is um, the relationship between our diet, lifestyle, and behavior, and our genome and epigenome. That, I think, is the fundamental driver of human health and disease, is how our genes interact with our diet, lifestyle, and behavior, and how that interaction leads to uh, changes in gene expression. That is, is really what determines whether we're healthy or whether we have disease. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi guys, Nathan here from Metagenics Clinical Podcast, and I'm very excited to have me joining all the way from California, is the director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, Chris Kresser. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Nathan. Happy to be here with you. Excellent. Glad, glad you could be here. Now, you're very popular down under in Australia. Um, you're very well known for your podcast, Revolution Health Radio. You've got some great online content that people are really familiar with. And I even know of a few practitioners who have, from Australia who have gone over and, and done your ADAPT training, which we'll get to. But for those practitioners less familiar with you, I'd like you to uh, just step us through perhaps your, your health journey you've had to, uh, in the early days and how you got into functional medicine and how you got to the point today where you've published this great book, Unconventional Medicine. Yeah, thank, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. Um, you know, when I first started my work, it was really about taking back individual health, namely my own, <laughs> because I, I, you know, that's how I got into this work. I, I got very sick when I was traveling in Indonesia and, um, and it was, you know, early on, just I wanted to recover my own health, and that is what put, you know, sent me back into health, sent me into healthcare as a profession, as is the case for many healthcare providers. And then early on, it was really about sharing what I had learned in my own process, so people could take back their own individual health. And now, you know, that was really the subject of my first book, um, Your Personal Paleo Code, which was later published in, in paperback as the Paleo Cure. But then over time. Uh, it began to become clear that you really can't, it's really hard to talk about individual health without looking at healthcare um, because we, we don't live in a vacuum. Um, we're all part of a society and a system uh, and, and part of a healthcare system uh, or a sick care system, uh, depending on what you want to call it. And so um, I began to get really interested in and focused on how we can actually take back healthcare um, as a, you know, as a, a society, as a, as a culture, um, because, um, really ultimately some, you know, as, as powerful as some of these changes are on an individual level, uh, we see that the, the, the rising rates of chronic disease, not only in the U S but in all, all throughout the industrialized world show us that, um, that's not going to be enough, that we actually need to scale these changes so that they're happening on a societal level if we want to, to end, you know, reverse the, the epidemic of chronic disease. Great. So that's really what prompted you to, to publish this new book of yours, uh, Unconventional Medicine. So do you perhaps just explain the, the concept, and this is really drawing upon this ADAPT framework that you've um, created? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the concept is basically that we need a new model. Uh, we desperately need a new model to address chronic disease, which is the biggest challenge that we face today. You know, back in the uh, turn of the 20th century, the, the three top causes of death were all acute infectious disease, typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. And other reasons that people went to the doctor were also acute, you know, broken bone or a gallbladder attack, something like that. And the treatment is pretty simple. It was, you know, set the bone in a cast, remove the gallbladder, prescribe an antibiotic once they were invented. And it was, you know, it was just one, one problem, one doctor, one treatment. That's the end of the story. Um, today, the top three causes of death, in fact, seven out of the 10 
top causes of death are chronic diseases, not acute problems. And the medical model that we developed to address acute uh, challenges is not working for chronic disease. So we really need a new model, and this it's you know what I called unconventional medicine in this book, that is much more focused on preventing and reversing disease instead of just managing it after it's occurred and you know suppressing symptoms with drugs and surgery. Uh, we need also a new way of delivering healthcare because, again, that our current delivery system, the way that we deliver healthcare, is really based on drugs and surgery and and what works for these acute problems. It's not based on the interventions that we know will have the biggest impact on preventing and reversing disease, which are namely diet, lifestyle, and behavior change. So I proposed a framework in the book called the ADAPT framework um, that has three elements. One is uh, an ancestral diet and lifestyle. We can talk more about that. Two is uh, functional medicine, which I, I believe is the best medical paradigm for addressing chronic disease because it's root cause based rather than symptom based. And three is what I call a collaborative practice model, which is a new way of delivering care that um, is more in alignment with you know functional medicine and uh, ancestral diet, lifestyle, and behavior change. Great, that's exciting. And what I want to do is dive into each one of those three pillars because um, I think for functional medicine practitioners, particularly the ancestral health and the collaborative model, there's some new learnings there. And and when we get into the functional medicine model, I think it's probably good to, to visit some of the, the areas you've covered and what works for you and, and maybe doesn't work so well. So first of all, the ancestral health I know you're obviously a bit adv- big advocate of that. You've spoken at the ancestral health symposiums, mm-hmm. so it's probably one area where perhaps functional medicine practitioners may not be as familiar with. So, can you add to why you've really focused on this and how this complements uh, functional medicine? Absolutely. Um, so the 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 term ancestral diet and lifestyle refers to a diet and lifestyle that is more in alignment with our human ancestral origins so um, evolutionary biology teaches us that all organisms are adapted to survive and thrive in a particular environment and when you change the environment faster than the organism can adapt genetically then you get a mismatch between the, the genes and biology of that organism and, and their environment. And that mismatch can lead to disease and even death. So, you know, at a um, much more basic level in the biological kingdom, if you, you look, you consider like a type of bacterium that lives uh, near hydrothermal vents um, and doesn't require exposure to sunlight, and then you take that bacteria and drop it in a shallow tide pool, it will probably die almost immediately because it evolved in a completely different environment and context. And then when you just very quick, you know, over over thousands and thousands of years, generations, which are shorter than a year for a bacterium, but um, you know, it didn't happen overnight. They didn't become adapted to that extreme environment um, overnight. And so if you change that environment very quickly, um, it will suffer, you know, at a, a, you know, perhaps a more relevant example, if you take a cat, a cat is a carnivore and they, that means in, in nature, cats, uh, members of the cat, fa- cat family, tigers, lions, etc., only eat meat. They do not eat grains. Um, they don't even really eat vegetables. Uh, they just eat meat. That's what their digestive tract and their biology and physiology is set up for because that's the, you know, that, that happened over many, many generations. Um, so then if you start feeding cats, uh, a diet that is ba- that is grain based, they get sick. And now, um, most veterinarians now do understand this. So if, at least here in the States, if you go into a pet food store, you'll see, all of these premium raw meat only cat foods advertised because it's it has been recognized that that is the optimal diet for a cat now with humans we're omnivores so we don't you know it's it's not as extreme for for us as it would be for cats but um, if you look at human evolution you see that we 
over you know 66,000 generations we ate pretty much the same diet in in you know with some variation we ate meat and fish fruits and vegetables nuts and seeds and some starchy plants um, and so that's what our bodies are adapted to that's what we thrive on and if you all of a sudden and by sudden I mean a hundred years it, that doesn't seem like sudden to most people but it is sudden in evolutionary terms you switched us to a diet that is predominantly based in processed and refined foods that are nutrient depleted and you know full of sugar and other uh, substances that we have really not had significant access to for the vast majority of our evolutionary history um, this framework uh, of evolutionary biology in an ancestral perspective would predict that this would make us very sick. And sure enough, it does. It leads to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, um, autoimmune disease, and a whole bunch of other issues. And we know that because we can still study some um, extant hunter-gatherer cultures like the Hadza or the Simane uh, or the Kung San or groups that are still uh, around in various parts of the world that are still leading a lifestyle, a diet and lifestyle that is largely uh, similar to what they they lived for thousands of generations. And in these cultures, um, there is a, a, a dramatically lower rates of all of the conditions that I just mentioned. For example, the Simone in Bolivia, who were recently studied and eat the foods that I just mentioned. Um, there are also some other differences, which I'll come back to. Their incidence of atherosclerosis is 80% lower than that in the U.S. Uh, nine out of 10 Simone adults had completely clean arteries by CT scan, which means they faced essentially no risk of heart disease. And um, it was estimated that the average Simone adult between the ages of 40 and, or, excuse me, the average 80-year-old Simone uh adult had the same vascular age as the average American in his or her mid fifties. Wow. So this is powerful evidence Absolutely. that there's something about our modern diet and lifestyle that is not working and that it would be better for us to return to a diet and lifestyle that is more in alignment with our, you know, our evolutionary template. That's great. So that's certainly diet and it's extremely powerful factor. What else is part of the ancestral health? Is there circadian rhythm and maybe being with your sure. tribe and those sort of things? Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way down the line. If, if we go back to the Samane example, they walk about 17,000 steps a day, which is eight miles. They live in close-knit tribal social groups. They get about seven to eight hours of sleep per night, and, and insomnia doesn't even exist. In fact, when they tried to ask them about insomnia, <laughs> they, they had wow. trouble because they don't even have a word for insomnia <laughs> in their language. So, they, you know, it, that communication, as you can imagine, was a little bit difficult. Um, so, um, and then, you know, that uh, there's obviously a, a much different relationship with stress and, and um, there are many, many differences. But it's important to note, too, that the Samane have much higher rates of infection. Yeah. They live in a, in a river basin, so they, they have a lot of parasites. And their, their levels of C-reactive protein, which is a systemic inflammatory marker, are higher because of that. Mm. But despite those much higher rates of infection, they're still healthier than us by almost every measure of health that we use. That's fascinating. So I, I sense that with the ancestral health component you add to it, you're trying to, as best you can, adopt some of these practices in, in, in you know, your Californian suburban person that obviously can walk around the corner and there's all the calorie dense food and they're on their tablet at night time and they work night shift and, and so forth. So is that part of the, the strategy is your first line therapy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would say it's not even really worth bothering with functional medicine if you haven't, um, if you haven't done this work on, uh, you know, diet and lifestyle with patients and, you know, diet and lifestyle is part of functional medicine. So yeah. really kind of keep separating those is kind of artificial. But what I mean by that is it's not, I'm not going to go and do a bunch of, you know, in-depth lab testing on somebody if they're still, 
what you know following a standard american diet and not exercising not sleeping not managing their stress um I'll, you know i'll just say to them straight up like you know yeah we can do that we can spend a few thousand mm -hmm. dollars on testing but you know even if we do identify all of these issues my recommendations are going to be the same uh, you know, yeah. to, to begin with as they would, if we just started and do, let's do all those other things first. Let's get your diet wired in. Let's get your sleep and stress management and physical activity wired. And then let's see if where you're at after that, you know, you might not even have any complaints after that. You know, you might not be overweight after that. You might not have high blood sugar. Yeah. We might not need to, to do any of this stuff. So it's, it's a very, very important starting place and foundation for the work going forward. Great. It sounds like there's a lot of similarities there with functional medicine, as you said. Um, so yeah, uh, the Ancestral Health Symposium, you can watch the YouTubes online. They're, they're fantastic. They're, some are, are pretty out there and different. You get some great speakers. I think you've spoken there previously on adrenal fatigue. So we'll put the, the links on there mm -hmm. for people to follow up on those. Great. Okay, now let's move into your next pillar, functional medicine, and we'll, we'll be sort of preaching to the choir to a large degree, which is great. But what we want to do is look at the way you, you tackle this because, um, well, functional medicine, though it's based on traditional medicine, it's still, in my view, it's quite in its infancy. It's maybe three decades old. It's been pioneered by Jeff mm -hmm. Bland. And they often talk of it as like an operating system. And I think that's a good analogy, just like with our phones, every so often we need to do a bit of an update and there's a bit of a, they give you a change log, isn't it? And when they say we've just tweaked that and done this. So I'm curious to see how you use this operating system. What sort of apps, for want of a better term, do you install on your operating system? Because again, there's a lot of different nuances you can go down with functional medicine, different paths and, and views. Um, and so it's hard to sort of organize this information and it's hard to know exactly what's, the root cause. So mm -hmm. um, you've got a couple of great diagrams in your book. I just was hoping you could explain that um, without the visuals, obviously, about how you mm -hmm. um, view uh, disease and how you view organizing your treatment. So the concentric ring um, model, yeah. if you want to explain that to our listeners. Yeah, sure. So um, I think you know, that's really where the rubber meets the road and for clinicians that are practicing functional medicine and any kind of medicine for that matter is, is figuring out, um, how to structure and layer a treatment. Um, you know, as you pointed out, there's so many different directions that, that you, that we, that you can, you could, could go in, uh, with a new patient. And I think especially for new clinicians, it can be pretty overwhelming to, uh, figure out what direction it makes the most sense to go in. You know, if you've got someone who has multiple issues, you know, they got blood sugar issues, HPA axis issues, they've got GI issues, they've got heavy metal toxicity. Uh, you know, where do you start? What, what's the, where are you going to get the most bang for the buck? You know, in like, for example, um, should you try to address the blood sugar issue right away? Or is, does that going to be um, not very fruitful if the if the patient has you know heavy metal toxicity, which is causing a chronic inflammatory response, which is dysregulating their blood sugar? You know that these are the kind of things you need to consider. Uh, so I developed a um, you know uh, initially for myself, and then ultimately for the book um, and my training programs, a few different models that help me to think about um, these questions. And one is this what I call the functional medicine systems model. And this is really more actually aimed at, dis, at visually de, uh, dis, depicting the difference between functional and conventional medicine. So yeah. at the core of that model is um, the relationship between our diet, lifestyle, and behavior and our genome and epigenome. So um, that, I think, is the fundamental driver of human health and disease, is how our genes and, and, and interact with our diet, lifestyle, and behavior, and how that interaction leads to uh, changes in gene expression. That is, is really what determines our, you know, whether we're healthy or whether we have disease. The next ring out from that, um, you know, if, if, we're, if we're thinking about... Um, <clears throat> this in this in a series of concentric circles is uh you go from there to um diseases um and 
you know, these, these are the, the thing, or, or we could say syndromes and diseases. Um, and these are the things that, you know, we typically think of with like, you know, type two diabetes or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, excuse me, I skipped a ring. The yeah. next <laughs> ring out from there is pathologies or mechanisms. Um, so when genes interact with environmental factors and that leads to changes in gene expression, what that will cause is um, changes uh, in, uh, in, in the function of our body. So an example might be we might get um, bacterial overgrowth in our small intestine, or we might see an increase in blood sugar, or we might see an upregulation in the production of inflammatory cytokines. So none of those things are diseases per se, but they're, they're mechanisms that give rise to disease. So the next ring out then is disease and syndrome. So that overgrowth of bacteria might produce the symptom, the, what we, the signs and symptoms that we define as irritable bowel syndrome or the um, you know, increase in insulin or reduction in insulin sensitivity might produce the disease that we call type 2 diabetes. And then from the next ring out from there is symptoms and, that's, and signs. And that's how uh, you know, the symptom is obviously the subjective experience that the patient has of everything that came before in, in that series of concentric circles. So for the patient with IBS, that's the gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, whatever, that's the way that they experience those, uh, you know, mechanisms, pathologies, the disease, the syndrome, and, you know, the, 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 um, interaction between the genes and the, um, and the environmental factors. And then a, a sign of course, is something that can be objectively observed or measured by the clinician. So that might be the, the high blood sugar, you know, fasting glucose level or, um, you know, a, a high level of meth of methane or hydrogen on the breath test, you know, that, that, that can be yeah. measured. So, so that to me is really helpful, um, in understanding this, because if you, if you, if you look at this model, you see that that diet lifestyle and behavior is at the core of all diseases and syndromes and all symptoms. Yeah. And the problem with conventional medicine is that it works from the outside in. It basically, you go to the doctor, you say, doctor says, what's wrong? You say, I've got, you know, um, I've got this, uh, digestive problem, you know, complaints, I've got gas and bloating, or you go to the doctor and they measure your blood pressure and it's high, or they measure your cholesterol and it's high. And then they give you a drug to lower the blood pressure or lower the cholesterol. Um, so it's, it's starting with symptoms at the outside of that circle and working inwards. Whereas with functional medicine, we, we want to start from the inside of the circle and work outwards. We want to look at diet, lifestyle, behavior, and even, and now, uh, genetics and epigenetics, we're increasingly being able to do, you know, to, to include that in the workup. And then we want to go out from there, um, you know, make by making changes to our diet, lifestyle and behavior that then reduces pathologies. It addresses the mechanisms and then um, that in turn reduces the incidence of these syndromes and diseases with, and reduces the symptoms that, and signs that are associated with them. So it's a it's a fundamentally different approach. Yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking now like. Uh, sometimes you could even practitioners may just sub out like a medication for a, a green pharmacy alternative, say, you know, tryptophan right. for serotonin or St. John's wort for depression, which is right. uh, effective, but perhaps it's not really getting to that core. Would you say that is that some of the uh, errors, for want of a better term, you, you find practitioners exactly. making? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a fantastic example, and it, it certainly is an improvement because the, usually those will be. Um, have fewer side effects than the drugs, not always, but but typically, and they'll be safer. But it it is still practicing from that same paradigm, or you know, where it's it's really outside in thinking rather than inside out, and you're playing uh, whack-a-mole yeah. um, with with the symptoms instead of actually looking looking for that core of the circle and seeing what the causes of the depression and anxiety are. Um, what are the, you know, the dietary, uh, 
um, choices that are being made. You know, what, what about physical activity? What about sleep? What about stress management? You know, what about nutrient deficiency? What about SIBO or GI issues? You know, what about all these things that we know that can contribute? Um, that's a really fundamentally different approach and it's, it's just really a different, a shift in the paradigm. And I think that's what clinicians, um, who are new to this often, you know, are coming from a conventional framework or even from a, from an integrative framework, which I think to some extent can be what you just said. It's, it's, you know, still the conventional paradigm, but it's using vitamins and minerals and supplements instead of drugs. Great. So there, that hopefully helps practitioners make the step through. And um, <laughs> I think people from want to yeah. find out more, um, purchase the book to get all these uh, great information. So the other one I lead into, which is that sort of um, inner concentric ring is the um, the exposome. And yeah, I think that's where the, the ancestral health really helps. Like let's get to the diet mm-hmm. and the lifestyle. But there's often occult drivers that um, functional medicine practitioners uh, have to look for and the challenge right. for mine is like how do you organize all this so i've got that um mm-hmm. analogy you, i think you've got it in the u.s that that game show the price is right I, you might have had it as <laughs> yeah, a kid yeah, you know definitely. you're trying to work out is the luggage yeah. more expensive than the holidays the golf clubs um yeah yeah you've got this uh, pyramid which sort of um, resonates with my little price is right analogy it, that the difficulty mm-hmm. for me is like how do you sort of um create a hierarchy here so can you explain your sort of position on that yeah. So, I mean, this, first of all, we have to remember that this pyramid will always differ depending on the population you're working with. You know, if, if someone is like, uh, um, working with people who specifically, uh, who are dealing with Lyme disease or tick-borne illness, you know, this p- pyramid might look different. But I, when I started to, when I sat down to create my clinician training program and, you know, I, had to start thinking about how I would teach what, you know, my approach to other people. Um, cause it's not enough to just, you know, I don't have the opportunity in a training program to just sit down one-on-one with people and have them kind of look over my shoulder. You know, I have to actually communicate my thought process. And <clears throat> that was re- really valuable because I realized that, yes, I do actually have a process that I follow with most um, new patients because over time I've learned that while it's true that, you know, every patient requires a, a, an individualized and unique approach, it's also true that in the vast majority of cases, addressing a few fundamental issues is going to make the biggest difference for the greatest number of people right off the bat. And then once you've gotten through that, those things, you can further refine and, you know, add, uh, additional things to the, to the treatment process, um, based on their unique, you know, circumstances and, and needs. So for me, those things are, uh, first of all, the ancestral diet and lifestyle, that's the, that's the starting place as I've already mentioned, but assuming we've addressed most of the basic diet and lifestyle things, the the next, um, three areas that I look at, um, and these actually comprise the three areas that I cover in my training, not surprisingly, (laughs) would be the gut, would be the gut, um, the HPA axis. And I know you've had Tom Williams on the, on the show. So I, uh, I don't refer to that as adrenal fatigue. Uh, we, We look at it as HPA axis dysregulation. And then the third thing would be, uh, a a comprehensive blood chemistry analysis um, that looks at things like blood sugar, uh, thyroid, metabolic function, uh, nutrient status, uh, cholesterol and lipids, uh, basic infection markers, et cetera. So the things that you can, (laughs) the kind of foundational markers you can assess using a conventional blood chemistry panel. And I found that, you know, in the majority of cases, Um, even in people for whom those are not necessarily the driving factors, and I'll come, I'll I'll give an example of that in a moment. Uh, if you do a good job of addressing those things, you're either going to uh, fix the patient or you're going to lead to, you know, you're going to cause a significant improvement in their symptoms and their quality of life. And, um, that if you get through those things and they still have complaints, um, 
it becomes a lot more clear what you what you need to do next and they already they're they're you're taking that next step from a from a place of um much improved function and and again quality of life so um, the patient is going to be happier and they're going to be much more willing to do that that next step and it, it's you know you know why not do just do it all at once uh, i once met a practitioner um who told me that he or he asked me about my process and and how much uh, you know patients usually spend on upfront testing and he was shocked that it was so low yeah and he told me that he spends ten thousand dollars that ten thousand dollars on testing for new patients wow. um that that's how much they spend and and i to me that's the wrong approach you know like just testing every single thing we can possibly test is is not only cost prohibitive yeah. um for the vast majority of patients it's it's pointless because you can't do you cannot address all of those things at once anyways you know the patient's going to leave your office with a bag of 50 different supplements or pills and they're just going to be completely overwhelmed and it kind of ignores this concept of how how important it is to structure and layer the treatment anyways you have to get the basic systems of the body functioning well the gut their people's ability to digest and biotransform and eliminate uh, you need to get the nervous system and the hpa axis functioning well because it affects so many different systems of the body you need to make sure that people's blood sugar is not too high or too low because that affects so many different systems they need to make sure their thyroid and other hormones are functioning optimally you need to make sure that their their nutrient status is optimal they don't have too little or too much of certain nutrients um you know so you you got to really kind of take care of the foundation and then once you have that solid foundation it becomes much easier to um, move on and address more specific things like mercury toxicity or chronic infection or methylation problems or mold or mycotoxins or you know some of these more um, advanced problems and what I often see um, is that practitioners will often will, will go on toward to address those issues without taking care of the basics and that doesn't typically go well yeah yeah and we're sitting there in this podcast trying to look at all these new advanced areas like muscle activation and mold mm -hmm. and they're super exciting and many patients do suffer from it but it, yeah i always want to try and keep it in context that we have to sort of go through the hierarchy first before we we get to the, the icing and the cake yeah yeah and here's a good example of that so you know my co-director at california center for functional medicine which is our clinic dr sanja schwag He's an expert in treating chronic infection, you know, particularly tick-borne illnesses like Lyme and Babesia, Bartonella, et cetera. Um, but he has a really different approach than some of his colleagues in the field. Right. You know, the, the typical approach is just hammer it with antibiotics, yeah. even, you know, IV antibiotics. And just, I mean, the, the, the protocols people get put on can be months and months of several different antibiotics. Um, orally or IV, and it's just brutal. And uh, you know, Sanjay's perspective is really different. He looks at it from more more of a functional perspective and says, and think, you know, uh, okay, even if Lyme or another tick-borne illness is is uh, one of the main causes of this person's complaints, we have to restore the ecosystem and we have to strengthen their metabolic reserve and their resilience and get them to the point where they can even tolerate a treatment um, for it to go well. And so you might spend a few months still going through the basic fun functional medicine approach that I just mentioned, looking at gut, HPA axis, nutrient balance, hormones, et cetera, and really um, work to optimize those things. And in many cases, he finds that the, the patient will often improve to like maybe 60 to 80 percent of where they want to get to yeah and then addressing the uh the chronic the infectious piece of it might get them the final you know 20 to 30 percent um there so um it's a it's a really uh even in a case where you have a pathogen or one of these more advanced things <laughs> that's causing the problem it doesn't mean that you go right to that 
Yeah, absolutely. And it uh, reminds me of the was it Garth Nicholson done a study just giving mitochondrial nutrients for Lyme mm-hmm. patients and their energy improved and their, a lot of their symptoms decreased markedly. So, yeah, it really yep. reinforces that, that foundation. Great. Yep. So what I want to do now is just uh, talk about a few little concepts around functional medicine. Um, the first one I asked you in person about 12 months ago when I, I met you at the IFM conference and you, you looked at me a little bit quizzically because it seemed a bit um, left field. But um, And that's on this uh, testing and, and framework of pyroles. And just mm-hmm. to give a bit of context, um, if you go into Google Trends and you punch in pyroles, uh, in Australia, there's this concentrated interest in it. So I don't really know the scale here, but 100, Australia's at 100 and then the next... Um, one on the on the map is the United States at four, so you can see there's oh, a wow. <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, actually, Chris Cresser put that in there, and it's pretty good as well for Australia. So you're pretty popular <laughs> down here, but not 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 up there with pyroles. But um, so yeah, that's why you probably looked at me strangely because it's maybe not much on on the US radar, but in Australia it's it's quite popular. So I just want to give you a bit of a background of some of the sort of views of pyroles. Um, so it's sort of viewed as this inborn error of metabolism. The pyrrole will uh, often bind, say, magnesium and zinc. It's correlated with mood disorders, particularly ADHD and autism and maybe depression. Mm-hmm. And you treat the person, their pyrroles improve, and they feel better. So have you looked into the pyrrole story, and, and what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, this is one of these very, very controversial issues where, like, people almost come to blows. And, yeah, that's you know, why I asked if, an American because I've asked Australians and they said I'm not touching it. Yeah, if you, like, look at some of the blog posts um, uh, or, you know, web articles about it, people often have to shut down comments because yes, it becomes exactly. so so vitriolic. And, you know, generally with... with um, subjects like that you know vaccination is another is right up there on the, <laughs> on the top of the list um in my experience with topics like that there's there's there are there's truth on both sides Absolutely. um it's not black or white it's it's much more gray but um it becomes very polarized and therefore difficult uh, for people who don't really have a dog in the fight they just kind of want to get to the bottom of things yeah um you know it's. I haven't looked as deeply into this as it, other issues, but the pro, that's and that's part of, part of the problem. It's not really that possible to look deeply into it because if you go into the peer-reviewed literature, um, there's very little uh, there to um, to really investigate. You know, you've got some studies from the mostly from the 70s, uh, you know, the 1975 through 1980, yeah. um, where where this was discredited as a hypothesis. And the research just dries up in the 70s. Like you, you there literally is, is very almost nothing to my knowledge after that that would help us to answer this question. And mm-hmm. so um, that is a problem because it, it, then we start getting into the realm of clinician, you know, anecdotal experience, which, which I, I think is valuable and I'm not dismissing that. Um, but it becomes much more difficult to answer a question definitively when you were just talking about the experience and opinion of clinicians versus, you know, a hypothesis that's been tested and, um, you know, published on in the peer reviewed literature. So, you know, personally, I'm skeptical. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't accept that, you know, pe- practitioners who are using this framework and, you know, are getting results that there's something there. But I, I'm just skeptical of the hypothesis as it's been presented. Wow, that's and, yeah, beautifully said. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just quickly add to that. Yeah, I've been digging around trying to find some research. There is a, a few recent publications, I think, coming from the Riordan Clinic in the US, and they've been uh, looking, looking at pyrroles for a long time. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm pretty much of the same view. Like, I think it, it could be a possibility, but it still hasn't been borne out yet. But from the, some of the, the areas that the claims are made, it hasn't been... Um, proven yet and it's probably been 
um, hasn't been validated in terms of it. It doesn't seem to be correlated with nutrient status. They think it might be coming from the the microbiome now, the the pyrroles, which is no surprise with this all the right. microbiome research. And if you have intestinal permeability, you're going to absorb the pyrroles. And it's generally seen as a marker of illness now, maybe like a CRP or something. But that's you know pretty. Um, right. Yeah. Basic and research. That's that's always the question with these things. Are we, you know, are we looking at the wrong thing? Like, uh, you know, there are lots of lots of markers that we can chase around, um, but when we kind of um, we can that can distract us from you know what is causing those markers to be out of range in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, I, you know, I think even SIBO actually can be this way sometimes. Um, there's of course a ton of focus on SIBO these days. It's really kind of, I don't know, I haven't done any searches for Google trends, but I, I my <laughs> guess is SIBO is our, uh, pyroluria. In okay. US, yeah. Yeah. Know, right. <laughs> in terms of what a hot topic it's become and everyone now has SIBO and, you know, um, it's uh, it's a little bit out of hand, and I I think you know SIBO, uh, unlike pyroluria, there is a lot of ton of research you know in the peer reviewed literature on SIBO, and it is a uh, you know there's 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 I don't think there's anybody who's arguing that it's not a legitimate condition, so it's not the same in that regard. Um, but the question is, does, you know, is it a, a, a pandemic? You know, is it something that literally? most people have it and and even if they do is it a cause of illness in 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 all of those people and um you know in a person who is is it has SIBO on a breath test but doesn't really have any symptoms and is treated and doesn't improve do we need to keep treating that person over and over mm. again I mean I, there are a lot of unanswered questions about SIBO and I I think um you know, one of the advantages to the internet is it puts so much information available at our fingertips, but one of the disadvantages is you can get a kind of echo chamber type of effect. Um, I know that some people um, like yourself and others who've looked at pyroluria in Australia have found that um, <laughs> there's a huge marketing effort there um, about pyroluria and like the the even though Australia has like seven percent of the population of the states, um, the number of searches there, are, are, I think some of them uh, when I looked at it a while back, um, you know, there's like 13,000 page views for for pyro, you know, for a blog with pyro, you know, a blog post on pyroluria from the U.S. and there's 40,000 coming out of yeah. Australia. Yeah. You know, how is that possible with the <laughs> the differential in population? And then you know, with SIBO, uh, you know, uh, I might start talking about it. Mark Hyman starts talking about it. You know, a few other people start talking about it. And then the next thing you know, it's like it's on everybody's mind and everyone's talking about it. And it can start to, I think, take start to consume um, more mind share than it really should be. Um, and, and people can get really fixated on the idea that SIBO is the cause of all of their problems. And if they can just get rid of SIBO, you know, everything will improve. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the reality is is um, often that that's not the case. Well said. Um, so just to wrap up the pyrroles, I'll, I'll post all the um, the research articles I can find on the, on the, the link to this um, podcast. And I'll actually mention that they are doing some research, I think, at the Endeavour College in Brisbane here with Amy Steele. So I'm eagerly awaiting um, the results there. I'm not sure if it's more on patient, uh, sorry, practitioners that are perception or actually looking mm -hmm. more in depth at the, right. the pathophysiology. So time will tell. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we should move on to the next one, but the um, you're pretty passionate about the, the diet fits study, the, a recent... Mm -hmm. A recent publication, which probably um, has similarities again with people having strong views in certain factions, and doesn't often always help the development of the science. And probably just before we go on, I think um, for me one of the interesting points you said about adrenal fatigue. This is not to point out people are wrong. It's you know why are we doing this? What's your view on what's why is so important to get the the science right for functional medicine? Well, um, I think we want to build bridges, not tear them down. Yeah. And if we want um, these interventions to scale and become available to people just outside of this, you know, our our, our industry, the people that we're already talking to, 
Um, we need to be able to communicate the value of what we're doing and, and be able to prove that the interventions and testing we do is effective and, and evidence-based. And if we can't do that, we're, we're not going to ever um, get beyond our, our current, you know, uh, relatively small ecosystem. Mm. And um, so I think that's vital. And you know, this, that's in so many, this comes up in so many areas, but certainly diet is, is one of the main ones. And for, for many years I have been, um, I I've had a, a, a kind of a catchphrase, um, which is there's no one size fits all approach. And, um, you know, we know that, as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, that, um, human beings ate a, a pretty similar template of foods for the vast majority of our history. But that doesn't mean every individual ate the same diet. And in fact, you see a pretty big variation yeah. amongst cult, um, cultures based on where they live and their genetics and background. So, <clears throat> you know, you have like the Inuit and the Maasai who ate a diet that was relatively high in fat and low in carbohydrates. And then you had people like the Kitabans and the Tukacenta um, in the South Pacific who ate a diet that was relatively high in carbohydrates and low in fat. And they were both very healthy. So it was more about what they weren't eating <laughs> and that they were eating nutrient-dense, you know, anti-inflammatory whole foods and not eating highly refined and processed foods than it was the specific ratio of you know, fat to protein to carbohydrates. And uh, back in 2016, I wrote an article called Carbohydrates, Why Quality Trumps Quantity, mm. where I made the same argument. Like, you know, for most people, it's it's not really about how much carbohydrate they eat, but rather what types of carbohydrate they eat, you know. And um, you can't compare sweet potatoes and whole fruit to you know, ding dongs and big gulps and Twinkies and pizza, like those, those, they're all carbohydrates, but they're not the same. They don't have the same impact on the body. And, uh, this recent study that just came out was, I, I don't, I'm not so naive as to think that it's going to be the final nail in the coffin, <laughs> no, on this, but, but, uh, it, it, from a, from an evidence, uh, perspective, it, sh it really kind of should be because what they found was that, um, people are able to lose weight on both a lower fat and a lower carb diet as long as they stick with it. <laughs> and as long as, here's the key point, the diet is based on real whole nutrient dense foods. <clears throat> That's what was different about this study. A lot of previous studies which tried to compare low carb and low fat diets um, didn't give any guidance on the type, the quality of macronutrients to consume, you know, it was just like restrict your carbs. We don't care what kind of fat you eat, yeah. but, you know, just eat fat and, and don't eat carbs yep. or, and for the low fat people, it's like, as long as you don't eat fat, we don't care if you can, you know, go ahead and knock yourself out with fat free donuts and bagels, you yep. know, bagels with no cream cheese and pasta. And, you know, in this study, they actually, um, gave very specific guidance on what kinds of foods they should be eating, high quality, nutrient dense foods. And um, guess what? You know, the, the weight loss was very similar amongst both groups. Um, so that is very powerful finding and should really help us to let go <laughs> of this um, almost religious debate now that mm. tends to happen about mm. carbohydrates and fat. I want to emphasize it does not mean that some people will not do better on a low carb or a low fat diet. It just means that overall on a population scale, quality is much more important than quantity. Well said. Um, we'll get to the, the adherence part in a moment. I'll just quickly touch upon a couple other things. We'll give context. This study was quite a large study. It was over 12 months. Um, they both spontaneously um, reduced their caloric intake by about 30%. Uh, the other th interesting things were they looked at genotyping and also like biomarkers. And um, so when it came to the genotyping, like did they have the APOE4 or some sort of carbohydrate SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism? That didn't seem to correlate on which diet they'd right. go better on nor um, predict the weight loss. And I believe also with the insulin markers as well that the insulin yep. levels did not predict um, weight loss. 
because that was has always been one of the counter arguments. You know, maybe some people are just not genetically wired to to process carbohydrates or fat, and and yeah, at least with the markers. Now, this didn't rule out the possibility that there are other markers that would determine yeah, that, but yeah. at least with the markers that they use, that that was not the case. Um, you know, we were chatting about this before the show, but I think there actually is a considerable amount of research um, that uh, t tells us a, a lot about what leads to weight gain and fat gain and how the brain is largely in control of that process. And the the thing that I like about this theory of you know hedonic and homeostatic <clears throat> regulation of of weight and my favorite book on this subject is by a friend and colleague, um, Dr. Stefan Guillenet. It's called The Hungry Brain, um, outs outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat. I think it's a fantastic Absolutely. summary of the research. Um, and he he was uh, uh, at the University of Washington. He studied studied the neurobiology of of weight regulation. So this was his field um, for many, many years. Um, but it unifies, it, it's the one theory that can explain how a low carb and low fat diet could both be effective. Um, mm. you, you know, unlike the insulin hypothesis of obesity, which would, would only suggest that a low carb diet could be effective. This theory holds that the brain is the, the the main player in terms of regulating um, food intake and body fatness and um, in in particular the re the reward value of food um, and this is a, a using a reward in the psychological context meaning how uh, it's a term when something is rewarding it makes us want to do more of it so foods that are highly palatable and rewarding uh, make us want to eat more of them and um, that will contribute to greater body fatness over time. And one way to reduce the reward value of the diet is to cut out or dramatically reduce one of the macronutrients because variety is a big mm. part of what makes food rewarding. And so if you take out a major constituent of the diet or again, dramatically reduce in the case of fat or carbohydrate, your diet is gonna be less rewarding. Um, you know, from from a hedonic, uh, you know, perspective, and that will mean that you will spontaneously eat fewer calories. Uh, the, the you know, without trying, you you will reduce your calorie intake, and that is how both low carb and low fat diets can be effective. So it's uh, I think I my hope is in the next few years we'll really shift, continue to shift this conversation toward a more evidence based understanding of of weight. And fat and body fat regulation by the brain uh, um, as the key player, and 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 move more towards discussions of quality versus uh, over quantity. Absolutely, and yeah, just for the listeners, um, Chris has done a couple great podcasts with Stephen Guillenet, and also um, on that ancestral health symposium YouTube channel, um, Stephen's got some fantastic presentations. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll follow those up in the future. Um, so we might use that as a bit of a segue actually for your final bit. I really want to touch <laughs> upon this. Um, with that study, we saw a dramatic um, variation in weight loss. And I think actually some people um, gained weight in that intervention mm -hmm. uh, in both yeah. groups. So pretty much mirror image <laughs> for low fat and low carb. Um, and there was a few little sort of um, subtext about the anecdotes in these people. And it was about those who got the best results were those who could integrate into their lifestyle or those who could actually give purpose yeah. to the um, to the intervention. Like, I, I need to do this because I want to play with my grandchildren. So this mm -hmm. is, um, moves on to your collaborative care model, which I think is really, really powerful and something maybe in functional medicine we haven't given enough airtime to about how we understand human nature and behavior and how do we capitalize on that to get um, compliance and the best results. So you want to touch upon this model quickly? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I really do think that this has been a big missing piece, as you said. Um, you know, we've been operating from this kind of expert authority based approach where, um, you know, if the practitioner just provides the patient with information, then the patient will just, you know, happily receive that information and then go and act on it in a rational and sustainable way. And I'm sure you know most people listening to this who are healthcare professionals know how that usually goes. Um, <laughs> it, it it does not work that way. Um, it's now widely recognized that knowledge is not enough to change behavior. Um, and you know, for example, 
Less than 10% of people sustain their New Year's resolutions after making them. Only 6% of Americans engage in the top five health behaviors as defined by the Centers for Disease Control, which is are pretty basic, you know, maintaining a healthy weight, getting enough exercise, not smoking, not drinking too much, and getting enough sleep. Yet only 6% of Americans engage in those top five health behaviors. Is that because they don't? Do, do we really think that people don't do that mm. because they don't know that smoking is bad for them or that exercise is good for them? Absolutely not. It's not a knowledge problem. The pro- it's, a, it's a problem of people not knowing how to change their behavior. Um, we're not taught how to make successful behavior change in school uh, in the U.S. I'm pretty sure you're not in, in Australia. And even in, as in school as healthcare professionals, we're not taught. Uh, how to support people effectively in doing that. Um, and it's not for lack of understanding. There's there's actually a tremendous body of evidence that, um, you know, uh, that documents effective ways to support people in making lasting diet and lifestyle change. And these include things like positive uh, tools and methodologies like positive psychology, which leverages people's strengths instead of focusing on their weaknesses, motivational interviewing, which helps people discover their own motivation and strategies for change. And you, you referred to that in, in this study, you know, if, if somebody decides to lose weight, um, because they want to see their grandkids grow up, that's them discovering their own internal motivation for change. You know, for that person, maybe losing weight to improve their health may not be enough of a motivation, but losing weight so they can play with their grandkids or see their grandkids graduate from college, that's, that's the uh, what motivational motivational interviewing can help people to discover, and then there's a there's a, a very robust literature on um, habit formation and reversal, which supports people in you know forming new healthy habits and and reversing unhealthy ones. So um, when when health coaches or other clinicians are trained to work in this more collaborative way, um, it, it's it's a very different approach rather than being the expert. They're more like an, a partner or an ally. That's probably a better metaphor. They encourage their patients or clients to discover their own solutions, become their own advocates, and develop their own lifelong skills, which empowers ultimately the patient and the client to become the primary driver of change instead of the practitioner. And you know, there's that analogy or uh, that we've all heard or that story. You know, give give a man the saying, give a man a fish. He'll, you know, he'll eat for a day or teach a man to fish, he'll, he'll eat for a lifetime. And that's really what we're talking about here. You know, just kind of um, trying to convince people to do things by providing them information that might work for a short period of time, but it's not going to last. And ultimately, people have to become their own change agents um, for these interventions to stick over a long period of time. And we have the knowledge and tools for how to shift our focus in that direction, we just haven't really been using them until now. And, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, I, I launched a training for practitioners um, a couple years ago. And now uh, in June, we're getting ready to launch our training for health coaches um, or for people who want to learn health coaching skills, because I really believe um, because of everything that I just said, that this has been the missing piece and this is going to be what makes the difference in in terms of whether we're successful or not successful in in uh, ending the chronic disease epidemic? Yeah, that's great. That's a, a huge gap. I think that we have overlooked um, up until now. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that that method of a, approach. And yeah, for listeners, they can learn a lot more about it in the book and um, the adapt training. I wish we could spend more time on it, but you've been generous enough with your time. So we might um, start to wrap it up and hopefully, as I said, the, maybe the listeners that weren't familiar with you are now very familiar and know why um, we get so excited about your information because it's so so concise and balanced and, yeah, those real sort of missing pieces are exposed. So do you want to give a bit of a, um, a shout-out to your ADAPT training and, and some of your resources? Yeah, sure. So um, that's that's really what my focus is now is training the next generation of health professionals to to you know make an impact on reversing chronic disease um and uh, in 2016 we launched our training for licensed healthcare professionals doctors um uh, you know chiropractors naturopaths acupuncturists um, nurse practitioners physician assistants etc 
Um, that's been going strong now for the past um, two and a half years. We've trained over 400 clinicians from all around the world in functional medicine, uh, ancestral diet and lifestyle, and you know, managing a functional medicine practice, which is of course very different than managing a conventional practice. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, this this year in June. Uh, enrollment's actually starting in a few weeks. In April, we're going to be launching the Adapt Health Coach Training Program, and that's going to feature the core core health coaching skills, which I just mentioned, things like motivational interviewing, uh, positive psychology, stages of change, habit formation and reversal. Um, these these really um, these skills that turn you into a behavior change ninja or change agent. <laughs> um, but then we're also going to cover uh, ancestral diet and lifestyle in great depth. So it's, it's almost like a health coaching plus nutritionist program and then professional development, which are the, you know, the skills you need to, to build and, and manage a, a successful health coaching practice. And that's going to be launching, uh, in, you know, the starting, the first group will start in June. It's a 12 month program. It's hundred percent virtual. So, okay. uh, pe- folks from Australia are totally welcome to join. And we have, uh, just like in, in my practitioner program, we have people from around the world as well. Um, and they can learn more about uh, these programs at CresserInstitute.com. And then my uh, my uh, main website is ChrisCresser.com. Perfect. Well, Chris, you've been so generous with your time. It's great to catch up with you virtually. I'd love to get you down to Australia one day. And um... Well, you know what, Nathan? I think that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Thanks for that. That was, that was brilliant. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.